welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael LeMay, behind the machine, and virtually to my front is... Theodore, under the PC, under the person of Christ. Now, I'm going to apologize to all our viewers, and this is this is my fault. The internet's not working very well, so Theodore's a little delayed, but thankfully his audio sounds just fine. Um, and this is really Theodore's topic today. Uh, I say that because it is... Uh, I've said this in the podcast before, so you're going to hear it again. We have a big spreadsheet of all the topics that we could possibly have. And Theodore is like the man of all the ideas. Like Sebastian reads all day. I play video games and I don't waste my time. Theodore is sitting there thinking about philosophy episodes. and, and Neglecting possible. his wife. <laughs> I guess neglecting his wife. Um, so he says. Uh, so anyways, he comes up with almost all of our, our topics uh, with the exception of a rare few. And so this is one of his, unsurprisingly, this is proof text of universalism. But this is we've we've talked about universalism as as a strict movement before. This is more like a broad overview of many views who might believe in universalism. Is that right, Theodore? Yeah, yeah. Um, I really wanted to put in another couple hours of preparation, but um, because I was not neglecting my wife. Um, I did not have that those extra two hours of preparation <laughs> and had to basically jot down some quick notes yeah. and listen to some so, quick debates or videos. Yeah, so I think the general idea, dear viewer, is that we've got, we want to address some of the proof texts that we hear people who hold to a universalist attitude, which in case you're not familiar, a universalist believes that Christ saves almost everybody. Universalism usually says everybody. So nobody goes to hell. Everybody's redeemed by Christ. Um, some would hold that it's just a vast, vast majority. For example, Theodore's been talking to a lot of Mormons. Um, he's the one that, that generated a lot of our Mormon content recently because he's been talking to the Mormon missionaries. And Mormons generally believe that most everyone, with an exception of like a rare few, like you can count them on your hands, go to some form of heaven. Um, so we would consider that universalist because it's pretty much everybody. Um, that's that's universe, Christian universalism there. Um, and there are proof texts that a lot of movements talk about. So Mormonism um, talks about some proof texts. Uh, universal Unitarians or Unitarian Universalists point to some proof texts. And then just like some Roman Catholics are on the Universalist bend. They believe most people are saved. And so they, they point to some proof texts as well. Um, we want to talk about we want to talk about those proof texts, one. And then two, we want to talk about the the way those universalists do exegesis and reading the text that ignores other texts. So they'll proof text um, by quoting something that says that God is love, um, but they'll ignore all the passages that specifically speak about hell and describe hell and like what it is. Um, anyways, I'm stealing Theodore's thunder, but Theodore, you have the, the list of uh, proof texts we're going to talk through and some uh, big intro, a classic Theodore intro. You want to give it? Sure. This one's a shorter intro, but, so was just the quick rough notes jotted down. Many religions c contain an aspect of universalism. And as Michael mentioned, Mormons uh, believe everybody will get a fair chance, even allowing for that chance to be after death or even like a second chance after death. And Hindus obviously believe in reincarnation and re reincarnation is essentially um, innumer innumerable second chances. Um, but when you come to scripture, you see that God speaks of saving the remnant or reserving a remnant for himself. Um, and also broad is the way that leads to destruction. Um, and narrow is the way that leads to salvation. And there are few that find it. Maybe few comparatively to, uh, like all humans that have ever lived. Who knows? It's just a 
long term. Um, and so I was thinking two main objections that universalists would have, and again, feel free to chime in whenever, Michael, mm -hmm. um, would be a concept of fearing God. Because a lot of people don't like the idea that you need to fear um, God, especially God. Sure, you need to fear another human or whatever because they're not perfect or they're not loving or not perfectly loving. Um, but God, people don't really want to fear because um, they want the ultimate being in the universe to be um, satisfying to their desires and leanings and intentions um really uh, uh god is the only one who should be feared and god uh makes us comforted by saying you need to fear no other if you're going to fear anybody at all fear me uh, because god says in scripture that only he can destroy both body and soul in hell whereas obviously satan or any other human uh, can just destroy body and yeah our physical body is wasting away perishing anyway so yeah yeah I, say something? Th this has got to be the main this isn't really a proof text this is like a philosophical proof um but all the more i've got a i i don't think that universalists really care about the text because the text is so clearly not universalist um that they really only use it to as proof text and they don't really care what it has to say um i think mainly they they have a philosophical argument so i think this is the proof they they bring out and that is that um a fearful god a god that would send people to hell and damns people for sin is scary and they don't like that because it's because it's scary and so they say they come up with ideas that God shouldn't be scary because it makes them feel bad. It makes other people feel bad, um, in essence. And so you're saying that, um, and, and I totally agree with this. I think the appropriate answer to the philosophical question of would an all loving God be fearful? And that is that God himself says to fear him and him alone. Like you said, you quoted Jesus's quote here. So this isn't even old Testament. If you have a problem with the old Testament, this is Jesus himself saying that, um, don't fear those who just can kill the body. So in contrast to what you said, Theodore, I think it's very easy for humans to fear other humans because like you said, humans are bad and they can kill you on a no moment's notice. You could be sitting next to a grandma one minute and the next minute she whips out a knife and stabs you for your money. Um, you never know. Um, but God says, don't even fear that grandma that wields the knife or large governments or wherever else because all they can do is kill your body. And we know that God provides for you after death and you shouldn't fear death like that. Um, but fear God, because God not only could kill you in body, he could, he could manifest as a grandma and stab you or, or just send a lightning bolt and kill you, but he can also kill your soul, whatever that means. But it certainly doesn't mean bring you to heaven. So we know that, that God himself commands you to fear him. Um, and then thusly, like you said, Theodore, if we fear alone in God, we don't have to fear the grandma. We don't have to fear governments. We don't have to fear anybody else any other force and in that way fear of god is freedom from fear of anybody else equally i think you're getting to this theater and maybe you can say it more eloquently than i because god is good when we fear him we should there should be a lot of peace and comfort in fearing only god because we know god is just whereas that local stabby grandma she is not just she's stabbing you for no reason whereas the lord <laughs> punishes evil and he shows grace 
So God is the perfect one to fear because we should respect him and honor him and know that he has great power and fear his wrath. But at the same time, remember that he's a graceful God. So it is real fear, even though we, we know we're under grace, not law. Yeah, and if you wanted to diminish the fearfulness of that anyway, you could go to Proverbs and say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, whichever translation. And you could just even say like the deep reverence for God, the <laughs> strong uh, seeking obedience uh, of him, that's the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. And that's also really the beginning of eternal life, like following him in faith. Um, and you mentioned um, <laughs> uh, like universalists can bring out some proof texts. Um, and there's this one debate that I was listening to where this guy mentioned multiple times, well, I could read off like these 76 verses that I found that speak of universalism, um, but I don't have time to do that. <clears throat> and I was just thinking, oh, wow, okay, you could read off 76 verses. Well, I can read off 176 verses that support conditional immortality or the traditional view of hell. So, <laughs> I mean, we can fight with that, but if numbers win, then universalism loses. And at the um, end of the day, like you're saying here too, it doesn't matter how many uh, verses you have, because we all agree that God is loving. So I'm sure these verses are some weird amalgamation of God being loving or saving all people or whatever else. The question is, does the Bible speak to hell? Like clearly hell is not just made up by people, right? It's evident in the Bible. So like, let's go to the passages that talk about hell and judgment and final judgment to see if they describe a universalist salvation or if they don't. Um, and so these universalist proof textures, they don't go to the passages about hell. They go to totally different passages that aren't speaking about final destinations of people. And so um, they, there's an old proverb in, in the Bible that says, uh, a man's way seems right when he gives his testimony until he hears cross-examination. And so when you are positing some belief, whether it's to others or just personally, you should always look at the arguments of the other side because you will probably be able to make any, any side look good without examining its opposition. Um, and again, that's biblical wisdom, not just worldly. Yeah, and you already touched on my second point, um, <clears throat> which some universalists claim that God has to be universe, uh, a universalist, basically. Otherwise, he's not loving. So in that sense, they're basically judging him as being bad, mean, according to their way that they think is just or right. Yeah, we had uh, um, the most recent episode that we did, me and Sebastian, was a uh, response to an atheist qu questions for Christians. And one of them was, um, uh, like, how can God ask us to love our enemies when he's going to damn them all to hell? That kind of thing. So I think that's the general philosophical argument of, of God must love the way he asks us to love because that's what I think is nice. <laughs> sure. Um. And I just wanted to bring up a couple proof texts uh, that universalists would go to. Um, and first I'll say it's Colossians 1, verse 19, uh, verses 19 and 20, which say, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, him being Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So they would say, or they'd emphasize that 
Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. But uh, does that really include locusts, rocks, pencils, demons, Satan? Um, there, the Bible speaks of even like the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched in hell or Gehenna. So you could say, oh, the, the worm doesn't die. It's uh, <laughs> reconciled or <laughs> made eternal or something like that. <laughs> and the fire's not quenched. It's reconciled. Who knows? Um, but obviously, these natural things that we are, like, it recycles. Like soil and dead flesh and whatever. Um, but yeah, God creates and destroys. There's both of those. He does both. Scripture's clear. Um, and then I'd also, something that I ran with Tata was Isaiah 33, 14 to 15, which says, Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. And they say, Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with everlasting burning? It doesn't, uh, well, yeah. To me, that would say, um, no, they can't live in that no that's not like a glorifying or justifying or disciplining fire that's a consuming fire in everlasting burning that's judgment it's that eternal <laughs> judgment or right it's not reconciliation eating. that is to say and i agree with you right. Fedor. um we had a the eastern orthodox guy erica harv that kept commenting our, our number one commenter um by a hair <laughs> He was arguing that same similar verses, that same one from Colossians um, and, and others, that, that Christ's death reconciles literally everything to himself. Um, and therefore, both sinners and non-sinners are resurrected in the end. And those who like God, who love God, are going to have a good time in heaven. And those who don't love God are going to have a bad time in heaven. And it'll be a version of their hell because they aren't having a good time. Um, I think that's not in line with any of the views of hell that are expressed by scripture. Um, but I, I'll say... I guess I can have a soft spot as far as I agree that um, that sinners end up getting resurrected and that the there's new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus in this way like reconciles them. He's their savior in that he's he's resurrecting the wicked for judgment and he's and he's remaking the earth. So he's he's restoring it. He's he's reconciling even the physical things of the universe, heaven and, and earth, as as Colossians is talking about. However, I don't think that you should get it twisted like you're saying. Uh, we can burn, like if I have a juice box um, and I burn it in a fire, like Christ can't, he's not going to um, reconcile that juice box. Like that juice box got burned. He could remake another juice box, but like that juice box is gone. It doesn't have a soul. It's, that juice box is gone. Um, our bodies equally, like these, these bodies we have right now will be gone. They will not be reconciled. We'll get new bodies. Um, our souls are eternal. We've been given eternal life. And so we will we will go on forever because God has reconciled our souls. Um, but he doesn't reconcile this body. He makes a new body. And the same same for the sinner when they're resurrected. Um, they're, they're resurrected to eternal punishment. And so they aren't reconciled. They don't go on forever um, as far as an eternal life. Uh, whatever, again, if you know the podcast, you know, me and Theodore have differences on what we think happens in hell particularly. <laughs> but we both agree strongly on the main core principles. And that is that, um, it's an eternal punishment and it's a punishment that, um, 
is metered out to the wicked. So it's not ignored and it is not given as a result of the cosmic forces of the universe. It's given by God to sinners. And so these people are not reconciled to God. They are sent away. So when you read Colossians, you have to realize um, its limits. And of course you have to make it flesh with all scripture. And I think it's perfectly fits with all scripture to say that he reconciles all things to himself. If that means all categories of things. And second Corinthians five, uh, just the second verse that I'll use. And then obviously bring in another verse to rebut that. But again, we could keep going back and forth, back and forth. Obviously you decide what you uh, think is most convincing. Um, what God leads you to believe, perhaps. Um, Second Corinthians, uh, verse uh, chapter five, verses eighteen and nineteen. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the whole. Oh, it, it doesn't say the whole world. It's, it just says the world. So God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So again, they emphasize that, that, God, uh, that Christ is reconciling the world to himself. Um, and then I thought of John, uh, John 17, where it kind of makes both things clear that Jesus is reconciling uh, certain people to himself, a chosen people to himself. Um, royal priesthood, as Paul puts it in his letter to Peter, or Peter's letter, I forget which. Um, then I'll just read. So verse 2 of John 17. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So Jesus gives eternal life to only those whom the Father has given him. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Uh, verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse, uh, verses 11 and 12, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one as even we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but a son of perdition, so that scripture would be fulfilled. So again, this just mentions uh, Jesus is praying uh, for the protection of those whom the Father has given him, because Jesus himself has protected those himself, but there has been one according to scriptural prophecy um, that obviously Judas um, who's the son of perdition and uh, he's not reconciled mm-hmm. and that's why I mean that text is why some quote unquote Christian universalists um, they 
believe that a subset of people are lost, i.e. Judas specifically, because there's Jesus specifically calling out Judas, and the false prophet of the beast, who are specifically called out in Revelation as being tossed into hell, and Satan. Um, but equally, in Revelation, so the same problem posed by those texts, Revelation says that all those that were not written in the book of life were cast into the same hell that the beast and the prophet, the false prophet and Judas and Satan all are. And so those who believe like Mormons, I'm calling out Mormons here, those who believe that there's a subset of people in hell like the son of perdition, Judas and Satan and the beast and the false prophet, um, if, if they believe those people are in hell, why don't they believe that everybody that's name is not written in the book of life is, is tossed into hell? Um, and we, we know it's a, a portion of people. It's a group of people. It's not just a handful um, because of texts like what Theodore just said and, and parables from Jesus where he talks about the sheep being separated from the goats. And so the sheep are clearly a group of people and we believe that it's a vast multitude that cannot be numbered. So we fully agree that Jesus is redeeming a large multitude of people. However, the goats are a group that is also of, of size. We don't know if it's as big as the group of believers or not, but we know it's a sizable group because they're, they come to Jesus claiming to be Christians. And we know that not everybody on earth claims to be Christians. And even these people claiming to be Christians are sent to hell. Um, so let alone people who don't claim to be Christians. Again, it, you, you can't just take a text like the one out of second Corinthians that Theodore just quoted. And that says that Jesus is reconciling the world to himself and then say, that means that Jesus is saving all people. Um, while ignoring texts like John 17, is that what you just quoted, Theodore? Yeah. That that talk about Jesus only saving his particular people and specifically not saving those like Judas. And and just to, to hit the nail on the head, the correct interpretation then of the second Corinthians verse where Jesus is reconciling the world to himself is to have it in light of the rest of scripture. And so I can very plainly um, read through Second Corinthians and note the specificity that Paul gives to the elect inside of Second Corinthians about the church, which are these are the actual saved people. And so when he mentions that Jesus is reconciling the world, we know it's in reference to all the peoples of the earth, i.e. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Scythians and barbarians and whoever else. And just to go with that, uh, I was <laughs> going to bring that up quick. Um, and it says in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So again, this is extremely clear. It's not all, all, all people, all individual, every individual person without exception. It is men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But uh, it's not all of them. There's chosen, selected men from every tribe, and you have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God. Right. And we know, uh, just to sp speak on it, I think sometimes we get obsessed with biblical language that says every. I mean, the, these are very flexible terms, frankly, because of their poetic nature. There's a lot of hyperbole in the Bible. Um, we know that God wipes out entire people groups. And we know even just in history outside of the Bible that there are entire people groups that get wiped out. We don't know that they came to Christ ever, right? There are particular tribes of the Canaanites that are entirely wiped out by God's express 
command and, and then it actually gets carried out. And so I don't believe that that tribe is represented in heaven. So when it says every tribe, tongue and people, I believe it just means a lot of them. Um, so we don't know that this is even a promise that every tribe will have a representation. I know some well-meaning Protestant missionaries will say that. Um, it doesn't stop you from sharing the gospel with every tribe, tongue, and people. So we don't know which, which people groups God is redeeming. And we assume he's redeeming most um, per this text. But even then, I don't think you should take this as um, a blanket rule. Just like when God says he's reconciling all the world, um, you, can, you can take that too far and make it mean everybody in the world in the same way. I think you can go a little too far with this vision of revelation and think it means everybody when Theodore is expressing here. It clearly means a subsection of people from the world. And uh, if, if I could bring up one more verse before we go to two parables in Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, in Luke 20, uh, when the Pharisees or I don't, probably Pharisees who come to Jesus and ask him, um, man w- married a wife, the man died, the wife remarried, the man Sadducees. died, the uh-huh. wife remarried, etc. Yeah. And then, so it, they ask him, well, in the resurrection, whose uh, wife is she? And Jesus said to them, this is Luke 20, verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead either marry or are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So again, this is separating. There are the sons of God. There are the not sons of God. And only the sons of God uh, considered worthy to attain that age, the resurrection from the dead, neither given, uh, neither married nor given in marriage. They cannot even die anymore because they are like the angels, um, being sons of the resurrection. Yep, that's a, you know it's a rare one to go to, um, and so I think it's a good one to hit on because you might not have a pre-built. I heard that in a, in a debate oh, okay. <laughs> that I listened to this past week. Yeah, and after he brought that up. Um, it was more of like a discussion thing, but like the moderator, uh, it seemed like he, the moderator and the universalist, both like all agreed. Yeah. That kind of seems like not universalism. So I thought that was interesting. So I thought that I'd include that. Now we can go on to parable, two parables of Jesus. Yeah, let's let's preface it by saying, so we've hit on, this is not, by all means, it's not all 76 verses or whatever that some universalists can point to and say that all men are saved, uh, but know that we hold to that every single one of those verses that somebody might bring up to say that God is love and therefore shouldn't, couldn't, couldn't, shouldn't damn everybody or that God is saving all the whole world and therefore is saving every single individual person, that they are all taken entirely out of context. And I've never heard a universalist approach real countertexts real texts that point to the opposite, that say that God is saving a select group of people and that God is damning a particular group of people, of which there are many. Um, even your baseline Christian, well, the reason hell is, is a baseline belief is because even the baseline Christian reading through the Gospels, Jesus' own words, even if there's some freako red letter um, Christian that only reads Jesus' words, um, Jesus himself readily talks about groups of people that are saved and groups of people that aren't. And so 
if you are ever a Christian that's that's talked to by a universalist, whether they're Mormons or Eastern Orthodox or whatever else is talking about a universal salvation, um, know that you can capitulate on a lot of things that are secondary. Um, for instance, the Eastern Orthodox saying that all people are resurrected through Christ. Like, okay, I, sure. Um, but don't capitulate on this point that, that there's a difference between those who love God and those who don't. And not everybody will love God and not everybody will go to heaven. They, not everybody has eternal life. And so now we're going to examine some of the counterpoints that any fair examination of the Bible should examine. So I'll read the parable of the landowner in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 44. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented out to uh, vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he said to, uh, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son uh, to them, saying, they, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken but uh, to pieces. But, uh, but on whomever it falls, it will... And he, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Um... Well, we yeah. should we should sit on that one for a little bit. What does that tell you, Theodore? What does that parable tell you? Well, that's kind of like uh, the. Should I just go straight to John three sixteen? Because that's what it kind of is a parable of. Sure. Um, so the parable is basically God giving us this earth. We are to steward this earth. And God sends his son, after sending all the prophets and such, to tell us to repent because there is judgment. Um, but he sends his son in love, saying, surely they'll respect him or something. <laughs> um, but then they kill his son. And, well, what's the consequence? Those wretches will come to a wretched end. <laughs> so there's judgment right there. And... I'll save John, uh, John three for last. Yeah, and I'll just I'll just put icing on the cake on that. Totally agree. Of course, I think it's pretty straightforward. What you know, what the parable means? The Jews understood it. The Pharisees there. Um, I think the only possible defense a universalist has when they read through these texts and they believe them to be true is to say, okay, every time that God is pointing out texts like this, which are not unique, um, He's setting up a hypothetical scenario where hypothetically you could be judged and destroyed. Um, 
but everybody will eventually repent. That's what the Mormons say. It's what other universalist groups would say is that after you die, you get a second chance um, and God will will redeem you and make you a good heart. And so hypothetically, you could be tossed uh, into the outer darkness that we're weeping and gnashing of teeth, or you could be destroyed, you could be meeting a wretched end, but nobody actually does. It's just a hypothetical category. But you'll see that Jesus refutes that idea without even trying because he points to the Pharisees and says, like this parable is talking about you specifically. He's not, it's not hypothetical about the Pharisees. It will, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to others. And so those Pharisees will meet the wretched end. It's not an empty category of people. It is a filled category of people, at least with those Pharisees he's talking to. And um, equally elsewhere, does he give parables and then say, you, you meet these parables. He tells in John 6, um, you do not hear my words because you are not my sheep. That's straight up saying you are goats. You are the, the people who are tossed in to the fire. So it's not an empty category of people who are unsaved. It is a filled category with it again. Whether or not we can get into to hypothetical arguments on how big each category is, and I'm willing to say that it could be that God saves more people than he damns. Absolutely. Like it, I don't I don't think that Jesus' description of the narrow path and the, the wide path are necessarily um, categories of eventual sizes um, of the two groups, of the saved and the unsaved. But um, certainly there have been large groups in the past already that have not accepted Christ, as described by Christ in his time. So at least the people in Christ's time rejected him. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Matthew 22? Sure. Let's keep hammering it home. All right. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared uh, to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. Unto his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. He sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as Many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. So the universalist might say, oh, well, here you go. But we'll keep reading. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner, dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. In, uh, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. To hear it expressly yeah. says, Many are called, but few are chosen. And you'll see, I think something to note about that parable is that... Um, not only is it talking about the coming destruction on Jerusalem and on the Jewish nation, um, which you could argue is just physical destruction, so maybe it doesn't speak to the final destination of all the rebellious Jews, although I think they should go hand in hand. Um, but it also speaks to the post, post-judgment post happening. So not only is the city destroyed and the wicked Jews that reject Jesus destroyed, um, but 
the everybody that's invited via the gospel to the wedding feast, um, even then there's a delineation between those who are saved, the chosen, and those who are thrown into the outer darkness. So there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which are the not chosen. So again, hmm. somebody could argue, try to argue that maybe these that's an empty category or there's nobody there. It's just a, a potential warning. Um, but again, as we've seen in other parables, um, Jesus puts people in that category. So it's it's not just that it's a potential category, it's a field category. And then the last verse that I have, um, even though obviously we could go to many, we could talk about this for days, but John 3.16, one might say, oh, God so loved the world, the whole world that he sent Jesus to die for everybody and they're saved. But let, let's look at the adjacent verses of John 3.16. So immediately before John 15, it says, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Okay, so there's a condition for eternal life. You need to believe in him. And then we get to John 16 to 18, or John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. So it sounds like everybody who does not believe will perish. Um but then those who do believe will have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So even the... Commentary the yeah, even the... Um, lovey-dovey text that lots of people like to preach on has the conditionals and talks about those who are damned as well as those who are saved. And frankly, you need the contrast um, to appreciate um, salvation. You need the, the lesser vessels, as the Roman nines would say. You need um, the vessels for common use, those who are damned, um, to really extra appreciate those who are saved because we know the difference between a believer and a non-believer is only grace. It's not smarts. It's not good looks. It's not lineage. It's purely God's choosing and his grace on you. So it's not something we boast about being the ones that are saved, but it is something we can appreciate um, that we who would deserve to be not saved are saved instead. And at the very least, this should disprove the very opening proof that you shared, Theodore, and that is the people who say that God is love and therefore could not damn, would not damn, um, He's, he never says that. He gives many categories of which he does damn um, in his parables and whatever else. So even if um, you think he's just setting up categories uh, of potentially people who are damned and then people who are saved, know that. Um, first of all, if you, if you think they're just two categories, I think you would have equal doubts about um, whether or not the saved category is filled if you think the unsaved category is unfilled. Um, but equally, God is showing that his character is to show justice. His character, if he was the king of a city, and which of course is the king of the whole earth, but if he, was the, if he was just the king of a city, like in the parable, he would kill those who um, were resisting against him. And even those who came to the wedding feast unprepared, he would throw into the outer darkness, this weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, a, another famous parable of Jesus uh, is the parable of the talents, where he gives certain talents to his servants and then goes away for a short while. And when he comes back, he repays each servant according to what they're due, and the one that did not invest his talent, not only does he throw that servant out, 
um, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth again to hell. But everybody who doubted his return, um, which is this is one that you won't normally hear in your Sunday school class, but in Luke um, gives the same parable, the ten meanness, the talents. And uh, when the master returns, he gets everybody who doubted that he'd return, all the, the rebels, and uh, has them slaughtered in his presence. So that is the character of God as described by Jesus. When you think that that's God's not character, you are disagreeing with Jesus. You're talking about a totally different God. So a universalist God is not the God of the Bible. Right. And you always got to ask, like, the for people who are evangelizing, uh, somebody and saying, oh, God's going to save you. And somebody can just rightly ask, well, save me from what? Some extra disciplining from God or some extra tutor time after death until I come to understand him as I should or come to appreciate him and have faith in him and obedience to him and fearing him potentially. Um, no, it's salvation from death, from perishing. And that's why <laughs> I suppose we could say that's why we have found our cause. <laughs> In serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Did you have any closing comments or should we just close it out? Oh, I don't. <laughs> All right. Well, again, this is just a little survey, a little overview of some of the universalist arguments. Again, not necessarily Unitarian Universalism, but just universalistic salvation that comes in, in Roman Catholicism sometimes, Eastern Orthodoxy, sometimes Mormonism uh, all the time and why it's bad reading the Bible and why it just doesn't hold water to the actual text of scripture that refute it. So thank you for listening. Again, it's why we have found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. As Theodore said, I've been Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my virtual friend has been... Theodore, under the PC. If you want to check out all of our episodes, we're on foundcause.podbean.com, or you can listen to us audio and download the episodes. If you don't want to see uh, just the audio and you want to see our beautiful faces, you got to go to Facebook or you got to go to YouTube. It's where we are. I encourage you to subscribe and like the video and share it with your grandma, share it with your friends so we can start making buku bucks, um, <laughs> which we'll never do, um, Lord willing. Uh, until next time, we talk about something completely different. We'll probably react to like... Some some guy named B.S. Lewis was responding to our atheist video. Um, maybe we'll take his obscene uh, attack on God, saying that Jesus might have been Satan. Um, we'll see. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>